Yes, I can hear you now. Yeah, okay. I can hear you the whole time. Um, you were on here not that long ago, I think uh, mid-October, early October. Um, so you don't have to go too deep into, into who you are and your background, but you know, plug w w what you do and, and uh, just a slight little um, bio at the start and then talk about the anti-Semitism, the impetus for the article. Sure. Uh, well, my background originally was in theoretical physics, but then I shifted over to software development probably about uh, 30, 35 years ago, 40, actually by now closer to 40 years ago. And uh, then more recently, in the last 10 or 20 years, I've gotten into a lot of political projects, political activism, and most recently publishing. So, you know, I have the UNS Review, where I've been doing a lot of writing and research of my own, and then hosting a lot of other writers on alternative issues. In other words, the sort of controversial, important, interesting subjects that are generally excluded from the mainstream media. And certainly there are a lot of those subjects and the exclusions have been getting more and more severe over the last 10 or 15 years, which obviously pushes more and more writers and analysts into the alternative media. Now, I, speaking of the alternative media, I, I listened to that whole uh, thing last night and I thought it was excellent. Uh, and so what caused you to write the, I mean, uh, Basically, if you listen to the article, you come to the conclusion that, or read it, uh, I just listened to it myself, but uh, you come to the conclusion that it's <laughs> just complete bullshit to, to use that. Yeah. Well, not complete bullshit. Uh, like, it's happened, right? Like, it's happened, but it, 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 I don't know if hoax is the right word, but uh, overblown might be uh, more fair to say. Well, I, I really think, I mean, basically, what commonly is described in the media as anti-Semitism doesn't really seem to exist in the world. Now, you know, it's one thing, for example, this, I mean, you know, when you have, for example, it's reached the point where people who criticize the Israeli government for its actions are considered anti-Semitic for doing that. People who criticize the actions of individual Jewish people are defined to be anti-Semitic for that reason. And it's pretty obvious that the term anti-Semitism has been extended to absurd proportions in the last few years or in modern times. So it doesn't really exist in that sense in the real world. Now, the point I really was making in the article was, you know, as I sort of began to recognize the fact that the term anti-Semitism has been so absurdly extended in the modern world to a ridiculous degree, I, I decided then, that was probably about uh, eight or nine years ago, to investigate the roots of what was called anti-Semitism. In other words, even if anti-Semitism doesn't exist today in the world, it's easy to imagine that it existed in the past in the modern world. And it's simply that, you know, the momentum of what had previously been existing anti-Semitism simply continued on to modern times, even though the phenomenon itself disappeared. But as I began researching the notion of anti-Semitism, I discovered that in the past, it really seemed almost as much a phantom as in the present. Now, the whole thing is, if you take, for example, classical anti-Semitism, obviously, as many people know, though it isn't widely discussed in the media, Jews were very, very heavily involved in the Bolshevik Revolution. In other words, probably 80, 85% of the leadership 
of the Bolsheviks, of the communist movement, were Jewish. And so, you know, given the controversy surrounding the Bolshevik revolution, the Russian civil war, all the actions afterwards, you know, it's easier to imagine that there was a backlash against Jewish people in many other countries around the world. And that, you know, obviously would have generated something that might be called anti-Semitism. So if we're exploring the nature of anti-Semitism, I think it's probably better to focus on the period of time prior to the Bolshevik revolution. In other words, when there would have been much less cause for it. And when you're looking at the historical record, three of the most dramatic incidents regarded as, as the classics of anti-Semitism would be the Dreyfus Affair in France, where a military officer, a Jewish military officer, was unjustly accused of being a spy. And that incident, the backlash against it, which really roiled French society for about a decade, actually led to the creation of the Zionist movement. In other words, the founder of Zionism said he was so shocked and horrified by the anti-Semitism he saw regarding the Dreyfus affair that he decided Jews simply couldn't coexist in a dominant non-Jewish society, and that's why he started Zionism. Uh, a second is issue, for example, was the famous case of Leo Frank in the United States. In other words, a Jewish individual, a wealthy Jewish factory owner in Atlanta, Georgia, who was accused of a vicious crime of rape and murder, according to most of the media accounts, unjustly accused, and to try to save his life, Jews around the country mobilized, and that led to the creation of the ADL. So that was another classic anti-Semitic incident. And then the third case, for example, was the massive anti-Semitism that supposedly was found in Tsarist Russia with pogroms, with all sorts of brutal treatment, oppressive, oppressive treatment of the Jews of Russia. And that in turn, led to, for example, the massive Jewish support for Marxist and Bolshevik organizations, which ultimately culminated in the Russian Revolution, in the Bolshevik Revolution. So those were three of the most extreme anti-Semitic examples you can find discussed in standard introductory history books, and they led to the creation of Zionism, the creation of the ADL, and ultimately the Bolshevik Revolution. So they had tremendous long-term consequences. But as I ended up reading the actual historical scholarship regarding those incidents, I found out that they were very different than I'd always imagined. And really, in, mo in none of those cases was there anything that might really be called anti-Semitism in the commonly understood nature of that term. For example, in the case of the, the uh, Dreyfus Affair, when I read, for example, the very detailed books on anti-Semitism by Albert Lindemann, a leading academic scholar, and you know somebody very reputable scholar. He'd written two books, totaling 900 pages, on the history of anti-Semitism in modern Europe. The Dreyfus Affair was not at all the way the media and the history books have portrayed it. In other words, there was absolutely no evidence that Dreyfus himself was arrested because he was Jewish. In other words, he was simply suspected of being a spy for the Germans in France, passing along military secrets of the French to the German uh, Germans who, you know, were uh, basically French's leading military opponent. And simply for that reason, the fact that he was arrested, that had nothing to do with his being Jewish. And there was no indication at the time. Not only that, but the founder of the Zionist movement, Theodore Herzl, 
actually at the time believed, along with most other people, that Dreyfus was probably guilty. He was believed to be guilty because there was really quite a lot of evidence against him. Now, you know, as it happened, as more and more evidence came out, Dreyfus was clearly innocent. In other words, he really had been unjustly accused. But the accusations against him had nothing to do with the fact that he was Jewish. I mean, in fact, it was more the fact that his family came from Alsace, which was a part of uh, which had been seized by Germany. So in other words, his family basically came from a German-dominated part of France. That probably was more of a factor behind any sort of bias against him than the fact that he was Jewish. And not only that, but as the controversy developed, Dreyfus came from basically a very wealthy Jewish family. And it came out the fact that his brother was offering enormous financial bribes in order to try to get Dreyfus freed. So there was a widespread perception that Dreyfus, a, for, a spy for the Germans, might escape just punishment because he came from a very wealthy, influential family and bribes were being offered on his behalf. Also, in the previous few years, even though there were very few Jews living in France, probably one of a thousand Frenchmen was Jewish, there actually had been some recent financial scandals run mostly by Jewish people that had impoverished large numbers of ordinary French investors basically, you know, driven them to bankruptcy. They lost all their investment money. And th those individuals then escaped punishment through use of political influence and bribes. So in other words, a lot of people simply thought Dreyfus was guilty. He was a foreign spy and he would escape punishment because his family, his wealthy family, and also other Jewish groups were mobilizing to defend him simply on grounds that he was Jewish. And so, you know, Obviously, as the incident moved forward and there were more and more, you know, facts of the sort coming out, there certainly might have been a backlash against French Jews and against the Dreyfus family, but more because of what they were doing and they were believed to be trying to protect a foreign spy. So, you know, again, that's very different than the notion of Dreyfus having been arrested or accused of what he was doing simply because he was Jewish. And there was no evidence for that at all. And you talked nope. to, well, I was just going to follow up on that sure. a little bit and let you talk a little bit more, but you, you talked about um, how there were problems in France where um, uh, basically Jews had gotten away with, with crimes before by bribing people. And so there was a, there was a fear of that happening again already. Right. Exactly, exactly. Now, you know, I mean, all of us know recent events in the United States, I mean, where, you know, things sometimes along similar lines have happened. And so, you know, again, there wasn't any sense of Dreyfus being accused because he was Jewish. There was strong evidence implicating him. And once he was arrested, the fact that it came out that his brother was trying to use bribery to free him and that other Jews then were mobilizing to defend him, those were the facts that then led to my, what, what might be called an anti-Semitic backlash. But the backlash came because of the behavior of Dreyfus's family and some other members of the community that were trying to protect somebody widely perceived as being a foreign spy, uh, somebody basically spying for the Germans. So, I mean, that seems to be much more the typical historical pattern that you find in some of these other events. And, you know, the second case is even more extreme than that. And that's the Leo Frank case in the United States. 
But just over 100 years ago, I think Frank was arrested in 1913. He was basically a wealthy Jewish factory owner, employing a number of very impoverished Southerners in the old South of, uh, you know, Atlanta. And it turns out Frank then was arrested on grounds that he'd raped and murdered one of his 13-year-old employees, a 13-year-old girl named Mary Fagan. Now, you know, at, at first, I mean, basically, nobody nobody initially suspected Frank. I mean, Frank basically was a wealthy fact, factory owner, really one of the pillars of the community. In fact, he was president of the Atlanta B'nai B'rith, the Jewish fraternal organization. So he was probably one of the most prominent Jewish people in the South. And in fact, initially, so there was some suspicion towards some of the black factory workers that Frank employed. And then, but Frank then started acting in a very suspicious manner. In other words, he basically refused to talk to the police. The police began to, you know, see that he refused, he basically had no alibi for who he was. When people had come to the office where Frank then claimed to be, uh, you know, sitting where Mary Fagan had come to collect her paycheck, basically they said that they came come to the room and Frank wasn't there at the time. So as evidence started coming out, more and more of this evidence started circumstantially implicating Frank. And then as the facts came out, for example, uh, it turns out later on, a black maid in Frank's household reported that Frank's admitted to his own wife that he'd basically murdered the girl, he'd raped and murdered the girl, and that many other of the girls who worked at Frank's factory reported that Frank had repeatedly sexually harassed them, and in particular, had repeatedly sexually harassed the girl who was found raped and murdered in in his uh, in the basement of the building. So, I mean, basically what ended up happening is evidence then started coming out implicating Frank more and more directly. And in fact, the interesting thing about it is then Frank and some of uh, and the lawyers that he hired then tried to play on the extremely strong racial sentiments of the old south of Atlanta by basically saying it would be impossible for a white man like Frank to committed such a brutal crime. And instead, it must have been one of the blacks employed in the factory who would have done something like that. But I mean, basically what ended up happening is more and more of the evidence started implicating Frank. And then also the other interesting thing about it is more and more money started flowing into Frank's defense from other Jewish groups around the country simply saying that, you know, they have to protect Frank from this sort of punishment. And the dollars involved were really astonishing. I mean, when you read, for example, some of the historical accounts, in present day dollars, relative to the incomes of that period, Frank's defense ended up raising $25 million in support of Frank. And a large amount of that was actually spent on bribery, on corruption, on perjured testimony, as revealed in, for example, the diaries and personal memoirs of some of the people supporting Frank in the case. So, I mean, as the facts came out, I mean, there were more and more pieces of hard evidence implicating Frank. And it, it seems very clear when you look at, for example, the facts involved, that, that efforts were made to implicate for um, part of Frank's supporters, implicating one innocent black man, then another innocent black man. And then finally, one of Frank's black employees admitted that he himself helped Frank 
then cover up the cover up Frank's murder of the young girl. And, you know, Frank offered him a lot of money to support him. Now, at the time the trial finally took place, both Frank's side, who, which retained some of the best and most expensive lawyers in the South, and the prosecution, both agreed that there were only two possible individuals who might have committed the brutal rape and murder. One of them was Leo Frank, the wealthy white factory owner. And the other one, was the semi-literate black janitor who then implicated Frank in the cover-up. The janitor ended up then testifying for 12 hours on the stand, attacked by some of the strongest, most effective lawyers that money could buy in the entire South. And he held up completely clearly with his original testimony. He was never broken down. And he basically said exactly what had happened. Frank, on the other hand, refused to even testify. In other words, he basically acted in a very suspicious manner and refused to even take the stand in his own defense. So at the end of that, despite all of this effort and the $25 million in present-day equivalent money that was spent to defend Frank, Frank was found guilty and he was sentenced to death on the trial. What then happened is that huge numbers of additional Jewish individuals all around the country mobilized on Frank's defense. And there was a tremendous effort to shape the entire media coverage around the country with uh, actually a Jewish guy named Albert Lasker, who was the most powerful advertising executive in the United States. And being an advertising executive obviously had a tremendous amount of influence over the media so that the media overall became extremely tilted towards Frank's position without really reporting the basic facts of the case. And then with all of this money and effort and 13 separate appeals, none of those appeals were successful. All of them were denied because there was simply no evidence, no reasonable grounds for appeal. And then Frank basically is the time for Frank's uh, execution rolled by. Suddenly, the governor of the state of Atlanta, uh, the governor's state of uh, Georgia, who it turns out was in a business relationship with Frank's own lawyer, then commuted Frank's sentence and basically refused to have Frank, you know, suffer the punishment that he earned. And as a result of that, Finally, the outraged people mobilized, and Frank then was actually lynched. So he, Frank became basically the only Jewish person lynched in all of American history, in 100 years of American history. And despite that, despite the fact they'd been found guilty with 13 separate appeals, all, uh, all uh, denied, when Frank's death penalty was then carried out by extrajudicial means, he then became probably the most famous lynching victim in all of American history. In other words, prior to that time, thousands of Americans, mostly black, but many of them white, probably a third of them white, had been lynched for a variety of different crimes without any sort of media coverage and with their names barely even mentioned in a sentence in the news coverage. While Frank, who with overwhelming evidence was guilty of the crime, ended up becoming the most famous lynching victim in American history. And his efforts to defend him and to uh, actually lead to the lynching of one or two innocent black men ended up then causing the creation of the ADL. So, I mean, the ADL basically, the ADL's founding hero 
which it recognized at the time of its 100th anniversary uh, num several years ago, was actually Leo Frank. And there's over absolutely overwhelming evidence that Frank was indeed a rapist and murderer of a 13-year-old young girl. So, I mean, we're talking about basically an incident. Now, it, it, in the original trial, when Frank was on trial for his life, his defense lawyers actually emphasized the fact that he was Jewish, saying that no Jew could possibly have committed such a crime. And there was not the slightest evidence that Frank was brought to trial or convicted because of his being Jewish. In fact, three of the grand jurors who laid, who supported the charges against Frank were themselves Jewish. The Jews were a very integrated, well-regarded element of Atlanta society. Now, it's certainly true that once so many millions of dollars were spent to try to save Frank's life and have him uh, acquitted from, you know, a charge that he clearly, that there was overwhelming evidence that he was guilty of, under those circumstances, with the money be flowing in Frank's defense, then certainly many of the people in Atlanta society really argued, how was it possible that any white person or certainly any black person with overwhelming evidence against them would be found guilty of those charges, but the Jews considered themselves immune, exempt from those things. And so that sort of issue certainly did become uh, present in towards the end of the trial and then also during the 13 separate appeals that were launched. But I mean, from any reasonable standard of evidence, there's it's certainly clear that Frank was guilty of rape and murder of a 13-year-old girl, one of his employees. It's also certainly clear that a tremendous amount of effort by organized Jewish groups around the country, B'nai B'rith, the ADL, a lot of individual, very wealthy Jewish individuals, were trying to save the life of a rapist and murderer simply because he was Jewish. And that certainly caused a backlash. But for that backlash to be considered anti-Semitism, in any meaningful sense of the word, is really ridiculous. In other words, if Frank had been Italian or if he'd been Irish, and Irish or Italian people <laughs> mobilized all around the country to try to save Frank from its just punishment, obviously they would have been criticized in exactly the same way. But there's no word for anti-Irish sentiment. There's no word for anti-Italian sentiment. While there is the word anti-Semitism, that largely has basically been created by the media as a synthetic concept to describe something that doesn't have practical reality. And the, the third case, for example, when you're looking at the situation in Russia, it again was very, very different than I'd always imagined. In other words, you know, my knowledge of most of these incidents had been by, you know, basically standard a few sentences or a few paragraphs in introductory history textbooks, reading the media coverage, reading statements in the media. But I mean, when you look at, for example, Russia, the Jews are described as being subject to tremendous oppression by the czarist government, and really much of it wasn't at all true. For example, there certainly were ethnic riots in some cities, between Jews and Slavs or between Jews and other groups. But I mean, riots are something that can be found all across the world. And I mean, the number of Jews, in many cases, for example, Jews and non-Jews had died in substantial numbers. So, you know, they were simply a case of ethnic rioting. And to call it anti-Semitism, is really quite misleading. Now, 
another example of the supposed hor horrific anti-Semitism in Tsarist Russia, where Jews were confined to what was called the Pale of Settlement. In other words, in most cases, they were not allowed to move outside the Pale of Settlement. But the Pale of Settlement encompassed the traditional homeland of the Jews in Russia. It was as large as Spain and France combined in territory. So in other words, it was simply that different ethnic groups in Tsarist Russia were not allowed to move outside the provinces that were their traditional homeland. Also, for example, Jews in Russia were had been one of the most affluent groups in the society. And the reason Jews suffered an economic decline throughout the 19th century was that their fecundity was enormously high. In other words, basically most Jewish families had six children, eight children, ten children. And the total population of Jews living in Tsarist Russia in the period of the 19th century had increased by a factor of ten. In other words, their population had tremendously expanded beyond the narrow economic niches that they traditionally occupied, which were middlemen roles, buying and selling, or sometimes, for example, serving as innkeepers or selling liquor or things like that. And with the population of Jews having expanded so much more rapidly than the total population of the Tsarist Empire of Russia, you know, they simply lost the suffered more economic competition with other Jews than they'd had before. Also, in some cases, the Tsarist government was worried about the rising uh, degree of alcoholism and uh, problems in the Slavic population, so it tried to crack down on the sale of alcohol, which had been one of the main Jewish professions. So, uh, in other words, certainly there were pluses and minuses to Jewish life in Tsarist Russia. But, I mean, the, the problems Jew, Jews suffered under had very little to do with their religious practices or their beliefs or anti-Semitism in any meaningful sense. It was more simply the situation they faced as citizens of Tsarist Russia. Another example, there are many complaints, for example, that Jews were then shanghaied into the Tsarist army and forced to serve years in the Russian army. But they simply had... Uh, in the late 19th century, Jews were then finally given full citizenship. They were made full-fledged citizens of the Russian Empire, and ordinary Russian citizens were subject to military service. So with Jews having suddenly become citizens, they suddenly were subject to military service in the way they hadn't been before. And that was considered shocking to the Jewish population. So at least prior to the 1905 revolution, and a few incidents leading up to it, there was very little of what might be called rampant anti-Semitism directed against Jews. As, on the other hand, the Jewish population became very dissatisfied with these things and hostile towards the government, many Jews then became involved in Marxist organizations or terrorist organizations. And for example, even though Jews were a very small fraction of Russian society, probably three or four percent, some Jews were involved in the assassination of the Russian Tsar, the leader of Russia, and also the assassination of several of the most important cabinet ministers in Russia. Now, take, for example, an American analogy. Uh, America has a small Muslim population. If Muslims in the last 20 years had been involved in the assassination of an American president, 
and the assassination of several cabinet members of the American government and a huge number of other American officials, appointed officials or elected officials, obviously there would be a tremendous amount of growing hostility towards Muslims. But I mean, that's to give it the name anti-Semitism makes it sound like something very far removed from the actual circumstances of Russian society at that point. So, you know, obviously, if a certain group, whether it's uh, whether it's a Jewish group or an Armenian group or a Russian group, is involved in assassinating the leaders of the country, there certainly would be hostility towards it. Furthermore, in the 1905 revolution, Jews were very heavily involved in an attempt to overthrow the Tsar. They were the leaders of the revolution and came very close to succeeding. So in other words, when you have a revolutionary group that's tried to overthrow the government of society, it's perfectly easy to imagine that there would be a strong backlash against that group. So uh, again, all I'm really saying is that when you sort through the, the term anti-Semitism, you really find it has much less reality, both in the past and in current society, than most people would have it, consider it having. I mean, uh, take, obviously, the situation right now in Israel and Palestine and Gaza. I mean, basically, the Israeli government has slaughtered probably 15, more likely 20,000 unarmed, helpless civilians in Gaza. Now, it's perfectly plausible that if you asked some of the Palestinians today what they thought, they would be extremely hostile to the group that has killed so many thousands of them in the last few weeks. But does it really make sense to give that hostility a special term called anti-Semitism rather than to just regard it as a natural sort of hostility that would develop from those circumstances? And I guess what I'm saying is, these were the facts in recent years. But when you step back and look at the history of 100 years ago or 150 years ago, the situation was almost the same. And there's really very little plausible evidence for a distinct pattern of ideological belief called anti-Semitism, as opposed to something that simply evolved under those normal circumstances of groups sometimes being hostile to each other for a wide range of just ordinary facts and circumstances. Now, I would recommend, first off, everybody go uh, listen to or read this article. Uh, and I, I named it at the start. I want to make sure I get it right again. American Pravda. What's the full title of it? I have it here, but I can't find it right at the second. Yeah. Gaza, it's called Gaza and the Anti-Semitism Hoax. Yeah. In other words, what I simply did was start off discussing the current situation in the Middle East. I mean, we're basically, what we've seen in Gaza and in that part of Palestine right now, is probably the greatest televised massacre of helpless civilians in the history of the world. Probably 20,000 Palestinian civilians have been killed by the Israeli military just in the last few weeks. Innocent civilians who had nothing to do with Hamas. Uh, just to give you an example, probably two to three times as many Palestinian civilians have been killed in the last few weeks as civilians died on both sides of the Russia-Ukraine war in the last 20 months. I mean, probably 15 times as many children have been killed by the Israeli military in the last few weeks as died in all of the fighting in the Ukraine war 
from early 2022 onwards, nearly two years now. I mean, it's basically just a horrifying massacre of innocent civilians. Half of Gaza has been destroyed. And again, these are people who are totally unarmed. They have no defenses. And they're being bombed. Their cities are being, their urban center is being bombed to rubble by the Israeli military. And there's actually very little evidence that the Israeli military is making any effort to target Hamas because Hamas is entrenched in their tunnels. They're basically well-armed, they're well-trained. And if the Israeli military went after Hamas, the Israeli military, even though they have tanks, they have Apache helicopters, would suffer severe casualties. So instead of the Israelis attacking Hamas, which are the fighters of the Palestinians, they're simply bombing to rubble an urban center of more than 2 million people, which is simply outrageous. I mean, nothing like that has happened on a televised basis in the history of the world. And this is probably one of the greatest massacres in modern times. And you really would have to look long and hard to see this number of helpless civilians killed in such a short period of time. And again, when American, when college students or other Americans protest this gigantic massacre taking place with American weapons, with American funding, with American political support, they are accused of anti-Semitism, which is utterly absurd. In other words, I mean, it's basically, it shows the, the total vacuity of that charge in modern American society. And the point I really made in the article is then if you step back a little bit and look at the history of anti-Semitism, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, the term was just as meaningless in most of those past circumstances as it's become today. It's simply a way of frightening or accusing people in such a way as to intimidate them and to force them to sort of keep silent on events that are really outrageous taking place. And, you know, many of these events in the past were outrageous. And certainly what's happening in the present day world is equally outrageous. Now, uh, you brought up uh, Henry Ford uh, and the Dearborn Press. I forget the name of the paper, but I, I've read about it before. Uh, and how there used to be... Um, Henry Ford is one of the most important Americans ever lived, maybe worldwide uh, citizen, right? Like, I mean, even just in global history. Uh, and he was quite prominent uh, critic, right, of, of, of Jewish malfeasance and stuff like that. Uh, but if you look at what's occurred now and how things have kind of progressed, uh, basically they have achieved the point where if you criticize uh, – somebody who's Jewish for whatever they've done uh, or alleged to have done, uh, then you're called anti-Semitic and the media eats that up, right? Uh, and how has it, I guess what I'm trying to get to is uh, how have they won in that regard, right? <laughs> uh, right? You know what I mean? Like, because they kind of, under, now I don't know if it'll stay like that because it looks like, you know, has, there may be some backlash years down the line um, from what they're doing now, but uh, how, how did they accomplish this? Well, I think a lot of it, you know, again, my whole American Pravda series is called the American Pravda series because it focuses on the corruption and dishonesty of the American media, that the American media has become our own Pravda, just like in the old Soviet Union. And I mean, I think a huge amount of this simply the 
framework of reality create the false framework of reality created by the media. Now, for example, I would bet that the vast majority of Jews in the United States, of Jewish people in America around the world, you know, believe that anti-Semitism exists, believe that anti-Semitism is a thing because they get their knowledge from the same media sources that all of us do, that everybody else does. And if the media over time has become more and more biased and more and more dishonest, it's created a false image of reality, not only in the Middle East, but in the United States and in the past of the United States. So what you really have is that most Americans, whether they're Jewish or non-Jewish, are simply living in a false construct of our present day world and the past as well. And so, for example, they believe these things, even though they have no reality. I mean, a small number of people bother investigating the facts. You know, they read the books, they read the articles, they read the archives, they come to the correct conclusion, they find out what really happened. But most people simply get their information from the electronic media, from social media, from biased sources like that. And the point you raised about uh, Henry Ford is a very interesting one. I mean, Henry Ford, towards, you know, in the early part of his career, had been very friendly towards Jewish people. I mean, certainly never been considered hostile towards Jewish people at all. But he gradually realized in the aftermath of the First World War and the Bolshevik Revolution, that the media, the media in the United States was becoming more and more reluctant to report on anything critical of Jews, partly because of advertising, partly because of Jewish activists intimidating the media. So Henry Ford was one of the wealthiest, most influential people in the United States. He basically created the American middle class. He founded our industrial the industrial strength of the United States by setting up Ford Motor Company. He basically created the car industry. And with his funding, with his money, he decided to launch a national newspaper called the Dearborn Independent. And now probably most Americans have never even heard of the Dearborn Independent. I'd only very vaguely heard of it as some sort of anti-Semitic newspaper that Ford had been associated with. What I discovered when I looked into the facts is the Dearborn Independent, Ford's personal newspaper, achieved a circulation of 900,000 in the United States. It was the second largest newspaper in America and the largest newspaper with a national circulation. It covered all sorts of issues, but it was willing to focus on Jewish malfeasance, Jewish criminality, when no other newspaper was. What, it certainly wasn't the sole subject it followed, but it was willing to focus on those things. And Ford then, after a couple of years, ended up collecting the articles he published in the newspaper on Jewish issues and published them as a series of books called The International Jew. Now, most of us who've read history books, most of us have you know, gone through high school and college, have vaguely heard of, oh yes, the international Jew, some crazy anti-Semitic publication that Ford, who'd become a vicious anti-Semitic, produced. And you know, I just got curious about it. It was about 10 or 12 years ago. And after discovering a few of these things, I simply clicked a button on Amazon and bought a copy uh, of the set of the international Jew and ended up reading it. Now, it came across utterly different than what I'd expected. In other words, basically, most of it was very tempered, very reasonable. It basically dealt with examples of Jewish crimes or Jewish corruption or Jewish 
malfeasance that simply were ignored by the American media. In other words, the sort of stories you normally would expect to see in the New York Times or in USA Today or any other news outlet. But because they happened to involve Jews, the regular media was unwilling to touch it. So, I mean, it was written in a very open way towards Jews. In other words, basically Ford or whoever was writing those articles in his newspaper said that, you know, these sorts of incidents are the sort of things that Jews themselves should try to basically crack down on. In other words, that Jews were being led in a very harmful direction by some of the criminals in their own community, by some of the leaders of their community. And that was important. So for Jews and non-Jews to coexist pleasantly and reasonably in our society, and for that reason, Jews had to basically ensure that their own leaders treated non-Jews in an appropriate fashion, just like non-Jewish leaders had to behave in the same way towards Jewish people. So it was written in a very open, friendly style. And in fact, in some cases, Ford would be very proud of the fact that individual Jews would write him letters saying that they admired what he was doing, that they agreed with him 100%, and that they wanted to buy subscriptions for his newspaper for some of their friends and relatives. So it was not at all what would be considered a crazy anti-Semitic publication, basically just dealt with news stories that were being ignored by the media for fear of Jewish pressure and Jewish advertising boycotts. Now, and so for, oh, go ahead. No, finish your, no, finish your thought. No, go. No, I'm, I'm just saying, basically, you see, for example, in the last five or 10 or 15 years, there have certainly been many journalists who have become concerned over the fact that our mainstream media refuses to focus on the fact that Jews have sometimes been involved in, you know, bad or dangerous activity. And they say, you know, with basically openness towards the Jewish community, that it's important for these facts to be brought out so that Jews and non-Jews can coexist in a pleasant way in our society. And that was exactly the tone from Ford, from the articles that appeared in Ford's newspaper. So it was very different than, you know, what I and I think most people have been led to believe Ford's International Jew was about. And I, as far as I can tell, nearly all the material in there was entirely correct. It was factually based. And it was certainly the sort of thing that in some cases you then find in the history books years later, but not at the time, because basically they were, you know, covered up by the media for fear of, you know, attracting Jewish hostility. Yeah, and the full uh, the full article goes in that too, uh, and you you alluded to it earlier about the uh, they didn't have that. I said the Dearborn Press or something. It's the Dearborn Independent. I, I misstated that Independent. earlier. Um, but um, they talked about Jacob Schiff. Um, I think you said they talked about him, but they didn't. Um, basically, they didn't reveal. They didn't go into him funding um, the Bolshevik re- Revolution and and this and I think the 1905. Um, attempted uh revolution he was in on that as well um but they didn't claim that because it didn't come out until what 46 or something uh, i guess his son or grandson had revealed it uh in in the press and then that was treated as you know just anti-semitic canard uh right and and it's pretty much been admitted right like pretty, i don't what, what what would be the motivation for him to have lied about that uh, in the first uh that, that actually as i said in the article the thing that really started me interested in exploring the issue of anti-Semitism was the Jacob Schiff case. In fact, I probably should have brought that up first because, you know, at the time, for example, I was in high school or college, 
Or, you know, sometimes, for example, when the issue of anti-Semitism came up, probably the single craziest thing that everybody always laughed about regarding the complete insanity of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories was the notion that the Jewish international bankers had created the world communist movement. I mean, it was so utterly absurd. It was the sort of thing that, you know, you would say that shows how crazy all of these anti-Semites are. They, you know, in some of the more extreme anti-Semitic fringes, you see stories like that going out around. And then about uh, 10 or 12, actually it was probably by now about 15 years ago, I discovered, and you know, I'm somebody who'd been very interested in the his- history of Russian the Russian Revolution, Russian society, Russian Bolshevism. I, you know, probably at the time I was in college and graduate school, I probably read a hundred books on it, all the standard history texts, all the standard books. And I felt I really knew the history of that period very, very well. But what I then discovered, somebody brought up to me about 15 years ago, was that there was this crazy statement that Uh, Jacob Schiff had been the leading Jewish banker in the United States, the leading figure in Wall Street, a very wealthy, influential, powerful figure, second only to J.P. Morgan, who had been a Gentile banker in terms of his power on Wall Street. And somebody brought up the fact that Jacob Schiff's own grandson in 1946 had told a newspaper columnist that his father, Jacob Schiff, uh, his grandfather, Jacob Schiff, had spent $20 million funding the creation of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, which was just astonishing. And, you know, I checked into it. It's it's a direct quote. It appeared in one of the leading New York City newspapers at the time, the Journal American. And then as I started digging into Jacob Schiff's background, first I thought, I mean, that's insane. In other words, something like that could not possibly be true, or I would have read about it in all of my, all the books I was reading about the Bolshevik Revolution, about revolutionary Russia. But then as I started digging into Jacob Schiff's background, he was extremely hostile to the czarist regime. It was well known that he'd funded the 1905 revolution, the Marxist revolution against Russia. It was certainly well known that he'd been involved in a lot of these activities. And I found many, many other references, including by leading journalists at the time, saying, yes, Jacob Schiff and some of the other Jewish bankers were the leading funders of the Bolshevik revolution in Russia. And so, I mean, there seems overwhelming evidence. For example, it was found in the the declassified military records of American military intelligence. It was supported by, it appeared in all the main newspapers of the 1920s and 1930s, the Times of London, the Guardian, I mean, leading newspapers around the world. So, I mean, it was certainly true. And not a word of that, not a hint of that, had ever gotten into any of the dozens or even scores of books I'd read, the mainstream history books on the Bolshevik revolution in Russia. Now take, for example, the Black Book of Communism. The Black Book of Communism runs 800 pages. It was published in 1999. It's a very, very thorough account of the entire history of the communist movement, focused especially on Russia, but also in other countries as well. The index of that book, it was published by Harvard University, the English translation of it. It was originally a French book. The index runs 35 pages. It covers all the sorts of obscure individuals who played a very minor role in Bolshevik communism or communist movements around the country, but includes no reference to Jacob Schiff, who 
whose funding basically originally launched the Bolshevik Revolution. You also got to understand $20 million at the time was an enormous amount of money. It's the equivalent of $2 billion. If it turned out that, for example, let's say, for example, the government of the of um, of Saudi Arabia was found to have spent two billion dollars funding the 9/11 attacks. Can you imagine that being excluded from all the American history books? I mean, basically, if it had come out, you know, again, there are some accusations that some of the uh, Saudis were involved in the attacks, but here we're talking about hard documented evidence revealed in the personal memoirs or the public statements of some of the individuals involved. Billions of dollars spent and not a word of it going into the Black Book of Communism or all of these other texts, tens of thousands of pages I'd read. So at the time I discovered Jacob Schiff's involvement, that's really, I mean, if the most extreme, ridiculous, absurd anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that the international Jewish bankers had launched the communist international communist movement. If that turned out to be true, that then made me very suspicious of all these other alleged anti-Semitic stories. And that's why I looked at, for example, Henry Ford's The International Jew, why I started reading through some of these other books. And again, what we call anti-Semitism, what the media describes as anti-Semitism, I think really can best be regarded as not being something having any reality. In other words, there certainly have been conflicts between Jews and non-Jews for a wide variety of different reasons. But, I mean, there's very little evidence, any of that amounted to what might be called anti-Semitism. In other words, most of it was provoked by Jewish activity. I mean, for example, again, the rape and murder of 13-year-old Mary Fagan and the fact that wealthy Jews around the country mobilized to defend Leo Frank, even though there was overwhelming evidence that he was guilty. I mean, when we're talking about things like that, that obviously can't be called anti-Semitism when there's hostility to the groups involved doing that in that sort of way. And so, you know, basically a lot of what I think is called typically described as anti-Semitism simply is concocted as dishonest media propaganda. And most of the hostility that existed was generally caused by some of the Jewish behavior at the time. And so, you know, if, for example, a group like, you know, Jews or any other group starts a conflict and provokes a conflict, when there's reaction to their behavior, giving a special name of anti-Semitism, I, I think is utterly ridiculous. And just as it's ridiculous to say that the relatives of the 15 or 20,000 civilians killed by the Jews of Israel in Gaza are anti-Semitic simply because they're hostile to the people who killed all their friends and relatives. <laughs> I, I think it's just as unreasonable to use that loaded term to describe a lot of these other incidents in the history of the world. And so, you know, I'm not saying that there's been absolutely no anti-Semitism in the history of the world. But it seems, based on these incidents that I've explored, such a minor, small issue that's probably less than the inherent hostility directed towards many other groups, towards Italians, towards Irish, towards Germans, towards what? Chinese, towards <laughs> Japanese, certainly towards blacks. I mean, in other words, you can find a lot of other examples of hostility that have less 
basis for it than you can in these cases. I mean, basically, when you take the Leo Frank case, when Leo Frank's lawyers, when he was up for trial for his life, emphasized the fact that he was Jewish, and they argued that because he was Jewish, there was no way he could have committed that crime, that bestial crime. I mean, that certainly demonstrates that Atlanta white society of that period could in no way be called anti-Semitic in any meaningful sense. When he was found guilty of the crime, when the evidence against him was overwhelming, and when Jews mobilized to defend a guilty individual who'd raped and murdered a 13-year-old girl because he was Jewish, that certainly caused a rise of hostility towards the people defending him. But it's unreasonable to give that a special name of anti-Semitism. So, I mean, I think anti-Semitism really is a hoax. And the more you investigate it historically, the more you see it really is a hoax. Well, you know what? That was the conclusion I came to, but I didn't know if you want to use that word or not. But after I listened to it, I was like, this whole thing is legitimately just a hoax. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. It's in the title of my article. Yeah, yeah, well, see, you know what's funny is, so I got the MP3, and so I just clicked it and listened to it. That's why I got the title wrong earlier. I couldn't remember it. So, okay. Yeah, good point. All right, that's my fault. I did listen to the whole entire article, uh, sure. but I didn't have a title, so sorry about that. So, I mean, the whole thing about it is, you know, again, different groups sometimes have hard times getting along with other groups. And I, I think in the case of Jews, one reason they've had a, such a difficult time getting along with the other peoples lived lived among for so many hundreds of years or even thousands of years is a sense of extreme cohesion in the Jewish community. In other words, for example, you know, if I, I think if an Irish person had been accused of raping and murdering a 13-year-old girl, there would have been much less willingness of Irish people all across the United States to mobilize in defense of him, at least until they tried to decide whether he was innocent or guilty. And in the case of Jewish groups, partly for religious reasons, partly for cultural reasons, there's much more of a sense of the importance of maintaining Jewish cohesion. In other words, Jews have to stick to each other. They have to defend each other, whether they're innocent or whether they're guilty. And when you follow that sort of behavior pattern, you naturally alienate a lot of the other groups around you. If they decide you're simply willing to stick to your fellow Jews, regardless of the rights and wrongs of a situation. And if other groups have done that over certain periods of time, they also provoked a certain amount of hostility. Well, it's so, like dirty I mean, cops, well, right? Like cops just defending cops. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, take, for example, you know, clearly when oh, I think there's overwhelming evidence that O.J. Simpson was guilty. But when a heavily black jury found O.J. Simpson innocent, that certainly caused a lot of resentment in the rest of society. And, you know, whenever you have, for example, a group sticking to each other, regardless of the rights or wrongs of a situation, that obviously alienates the sentiments of the other groups in society. And in a multi-ethnic society like the United States, I mean, you really have a stored up degree of resentment that way. So, for example, if Jews tend to hire other Jews, if they tend to support other Jews, if they tend to back up other Jews, regardless of the issues involved, that certainly causes a backlash. And that sort of extreme clannishness has certainly been one of the factors involved in causing a lot of 
difficulty between Jews and non-Jews and other societies over history. And so, you know, I mean, the fact, for example, that you have a lot of these Jewish billionaires right now demanding that all of our universities crack down on any protests taking place against what the Israeli government is doing in Gaza shows that they, in some ways, you could say, consider themselves more supporters of a foreign government than they do of, as Americans. And that's simply outrageous. That certainly costs a lot of resentment. Or take, for example, Tony Blinken, our Secretary of State. He's Jewish. And when he went over to Israel, he said, I'm coming here as a Jew to defend Israel. He actually sat in on meetings of the Israeli military cabinet. I mean, it's outrageous for the American Secretary of State to consider himself more aligned with a foreign country than with the United States. Or take another case. America, the Biden administration just sent somebody named Hochstein over to represent America in the negotiations taking place between the different parties involved in the Middle East, in the Middle East conflict. And Trump right did now. that too. He sent a Jewish guy over there. Anyway, go ahead. But, but, but of course, in the case of Hochstein, Hochstein was born in Israel. That's He's crazy. an Israeli citizen. That's insane. He's, he actually has no background in foreign policy whatsoever. <laughs> he basically, we are sending an Israeli citizen born in Israel to represent America in the negotiations between the different parties in the Middle East. And you see why the other countries in the Middle East cannot trust America to be an honest broker. I mean, it's just utterly absurd. I mean, we're talking about a situation, you know, again, when you take also, uh, take uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, Benjamin Netanyahu is somebody not very popular among Israelis. Roughly half the Israelis like him and half hate him. He's the Israeli prime minister. A number of years ago, I think it was about ten or uh, eight or ten years ago, or actually it was probably five or six years ago, when he visited the United States, he got endless standing ovations in the U.S. Congress. He was one of the very yeah. few foreign leaders allowed to speak before the American Congress. And whereas someone like Donald Trump is loved by half of Americans and hated by the other half of Americans, Basically, Benjamin Netanyahu was supported by something like 99% of the members of Congress. In fact, I think I remember one of the individuals who rose for a standing ovation and clapped very heavily was Rand Paul. But then Rand Paul sat down before the other people sat down, and he was <laughs> accused of being anti-Semitic for not clapping long enough. That's like now, some Kim Jong-un or Saddam Hussein style stuff. That, there. Actually, that actually happened in the Stalin era of Russia. <laughs> there were jokes that apparently really happened. That basically when Stalin spoke, all the members of the Russian parliament got up and clapped with standing ovation. And the ones who sat down first yeah. were then arrested as being anti-Stalin, simply because they didn't clap as long and hard as the others. And we're talking about a situation where a foreign leader comes to the United States, speaks before Congress, and he's treated as a conquering hero with people accused of being anti-Semitic if they don't clap loud and long enough for him. Now, you know, we're talking about a very bizarre situation in the United States. We're talking about a situation, take, for example, the Biden cabinet. The Biden cabinet is overwhelmingly Jewish. Jews are roughly 2% of the American population. The top positions in the Biden cabinet are mostly Jews. I mean, it's ridiculous. Biden himself has Jewish in-laws. 
His vice president, Kamala Harris, is married to a Jewish person. The secretary of state is Jewish. The chief of staff is Jewish. The previous chief of staff is Jewish. The secretary of uh, the treasury is Jewish. The national security advisor is Jewish. The head of Homeland Security is Jewish. Basically, the only non-Jewish figure in the top ranks of the uh, Biden administration is Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, who is a black who basically is a Raytheon board member, you know, a member basically of the uh, of the military industrial complex lobbying group. So, I mean, basically, you know, we're talking about a situation where America is 2% Jewish, but virtually all the members of the Biden administration, with the exception of one black, all the top leaders of the Biden cabinet, are either Jews or married to Jews or have Jewish in-laws. And then when you see, for example, America mobilizing two aircraft carrier task forces to back up Israel in the Middle East, I mean, this is the sort of thing that has never happened before in any previous international crisis. So, I mean, if if there were any group in America that was trying to create or provoke what is called anti-Semitism, it's the Biden administration, it's the government of Israel. And it's basically all of these Jewish activists, including the Jewish billionaires, that are saying that any individual, any college student, an elite college who protests what the government of Israel is doing should be blacklisted and denied any job in a major corporation. And look what they're doing, for example, with Elon Musk. Elon Musk is the wealthiest man in the world. He owns Tesla. He now owns Twitter. He owns SpaceX. He owns the uh, leading satellite company. And he's a very, very wealthy, powerful individual. But he was put under so much pressure by these Jewish activists who control advertising that he ended ha- having to cave. And he's now basically declared that anyone who basically criticizes the government of Israel, who talks about a unified secular democratic state, who uses any of those typical progressive slogans, will be immediately banned from Twitter. I mean, what, what's so ridiculous? Again, what Musk has said is that to talk about, uh, he used the slogan from the river to the sea which is a standard progressive slogan saying that they want a secular democratic state with equal rights for both Jews and non-Jews in the state of Palestine, Israel. He described that as being genocidal, which it obviously isn't. It's basically talking about setting up equal rights for Jews and non-Jews. Also, for example, talking about Israel being a settler colony is genocidal and will get you banned immediately from Twitter. What's ironic is that the leading Jewish activists and supporters of Israel over the decades have always described Israel as a settler state. And the phrase from the river to the seas was actually originally coined by the more extreme Zionist elements who currently are the government of Israel, because basically they say they want to expel or kill all the Palestinians from the land of Palestine, and have a fully 100% Jewish state, which is something that obviously is endorsed by the ADL, which would never say something similar to that if they were talking about a white state in South Africa or anywhere else around the world, or certainly in the United States. So, I mean, we're talking about a level of extreme hypocrisy that is simply beyond all human understanding and is the sort of thing that certainly could provoke a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism down the road for anybody who simply has 
a mind of their own and isn't intimidated by all these ridiculous threats made against them. Now, um, and we're not going to keep you as long as last time. I told you about an hour, I think, but uh, we're a little bit over. So I want to ask you a couple more questions, if that's okay. Sure, no problem. Uh, and, and, and we'll stay on, on this topic because I, I have a few other questions outside of it, but I, I think it's just better to stay on this. And, of course, you want the full thing. And now that I think about it, you say the title, actually, in the in the recording. Maybe that's why Hoax was, was subliminally in my mind already <laughs> to use that, even though I couldn't remember the title. Um, but, uh, you know, you're, you're a longtime academic, uh, well-read, uh, incredibly well read i was listening to you talk about how many books you, you read on the russian russian revolution and and uh that area of study and i was mind blown uh by that but um have you ever seen such a chilling effect um from a world event as, as we've seen with what's happened uh in gaza um over the years and how drastically is that uh, impacting academia I think it really, the whole thing about it is what's going on in Gaza is so extreme. Now, the Middle East had sort of dropped off the political landscape for the last probably 10 years or so. In fact, uh, Jake Sullivan, our national security advisor, had shown his tremendous understanding of these issues by publishing it, an article of his went to press almost simultaneously with the Hamas attack in early October describing the Middle East as particularly peaceful right now, and it will remain peaceful for the, in, the indefinite future. But I mean, what, what's going on is really just unbelievable. We're talking about a situation where we have an enormous massacre of helpless civilians in a densely crowded urban landscape, Gaza. I mean, Gaza has been widely described and correctly described as the world's largest open-air concentration camp. In other words, we're talking about over 2 million people packed into a small, very densely populated enclave. They aren't allowed to leave. Nothing is allowed to come in. Everything around them is controlled by the Israeli government. In fact, the Israeli government specifically said that they decide how many calories of food will be imported into Gaza to make sure that the Gazans don't starve but they have minimal food to keep alive. I mean, basically, any Gaza who tries to go fishing out to sea, their boat will be shot by the Israelis. Any Gaza who tries to basically go over the fence to Egypt or any other part, I mean, will immediately be shot. I mean, it's basically an open-air concentration camp, and it's been that way for decades. So the whole thing about it is the Israelis had assumed that they could, with their the billion dollars that they spent on modern technology and fences, automatic firing machine guns, sensors, detectors, they basically felt that they could keep the Gazans indefinitely confined to their concentration camp. And the Hamas movement really stole a march on the Israelis. The Israelis were so incredibly arrogant and overconfident that even after reports started coming out from some of their observers on the scene that, oh, it looked like Hamas might be planning something, they seem to be training, the Israelis basically said, oh, they're just bluffing. There's no chance that they would do anything. And then suddenly Hamas launched this massive attack using innovative tactics, using cheap drones to disable the automatic firing machine guns, the Israeli sensors, and Hamas fighters then defeated some of the best units in the Israeli army in a stand-up fight. They basically overran the military bases. In fact, the Israelis were so panicked when the attack took place that even though uh, basically about 1,200 people were killed, probably about four or 500 of them, of the Israelis who were killed, were unarmed civilians. In other words, civilians who died in the fighting. 
But it looks like probably the majority of them, possibly even a large majority, were actually killed by the trigger-happy Israeli forces. For example, the Israelis ended up fire, using their Apache helicopters to fire Hellfire missiles into anything that moved. They incinerated all the cars in the vicinity, many of which were occupied by Israeli civilians. In some cases, Israeli civilians trying to flee from Hamas. They then used tank shells to blow up all the entrenched Hamas fighters and their Israeli hostages in some of the kibbutzim or some of the military bases. In fact, one of the generals of the military base, when his base was overrun, he basically hid in a, a blast-proof shelter and called in airstrikes, Israeli airstrikes, on his own base, killing the Hamas fighters who occupied it and killing any of his own surviving soldiers. So a very sizable fraction of the Israelis who died died at the hands of their own troops, and the Hamas fighters then retreated with a couple of hundred Israeli captives that they seized in order to bargain for the freedom of the thousands of Palestinians who have been arrested and held without charges as hostages by the Israeli government over the years. In other words, virtually none of these Palestinians have ever come to trial. In many cases, they're just sort of randomly seized by the Israelis. In many cases, they're children or women. And the Hamas fighters, the Palestinians, then seized Israeli captives so that they could bargain with the Israeli government and to try to get them freed. Now, the Israeli government actually has developed a policy over the last 40 years, a really shocking policy called the Hannibal Doctrine, which indicates that any Israeli seized by a Palestinian guerrilla, unless that Israeli can be rescued successfully by the Israeli government, he must be killed. In other words, the Israelis must kill their own military personnel and their own civilians if they've been seized by Palestinians in order to avoid allowing them to become a bargaining chip. And that's certainly one of the reasons that the Israelis basically blasted anything that moved with their missiles and tank shells to make sure that there would be no surviving hostages that the uh, minimize the number of surviving hostages that the uh, Hamas fight is brought back. So I mean, the whole thing about it is what, there certainly have been far larger massacres in modern times. For example, the Hutus killed hundreds of thousands of Tushis. They butchered them with machetes in Rwanda about 20 years ago. There have been lots of other massacres, 30 years ago, lots of other massacres have taken place. But this is probably the largest televised massacre. In other words, you have smartphones, you have social media, you have YouTube. People can see videos of all these thousands and thousands of Palestinian infants and children who've been killed by the Israeli bombardment. The Israelis have especially targeted Palestinian hospitals, Palestinian bakeries, Palestinian schools, United Nations facilities, all of these facilities normally are exempt from military attack, and the Israelis have attacked all of them. I mean, they basically have killed thousands and thousands of Palestinians who were sheltering in hospitals or centers that normally would be safeguarded against assault. In fact, when you look at it right now, it's unlikely that the Israeli attacks have killed more than a few hundred, perhaps at most a thousand Hamas fighters, but they've probably killed 20,000 Palestinian civilians. 
They've simply leveled half of all the buildings in northern Gaza. I mean, it's simply outrageous what's going on. There's been not the slightest effort by the Israelis to restrict their firing, their missiles, to military targets in the way that the Russians have done their best to minimize civilian casualties in Russia. In other words, you know, it's the sort of thing with the fighting with the Ukraine war. The West has made it sound like the Russians have been targeting Ukrainian civilians, targeting Ukrainian sites, but none of that is true. I mean, probably at most a few thousand Ukrainians have died in 20 months of Ukrainian civilians have done in 20 months of fighting, while hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers have died in the fighting. In the case of Gaza, it's exactly the other way around. Probably probably 20 civilians have died for any Hamas fighter who's been killed because the Hamas fighters are well entrenched and it would cost the Israelis many casualties to target them. So what the Israelis are doing is simply planning to drive all the Palestinians out of Gaza. Now, what's also very shocking, and this certainly adds to the concerns worldwide, is Benjamin Netanyahu, he's secular himself, but a lot of his supporters are extreme religious fanatics. And Benjamin Netanyahu in his public declarations has described the Palestinians as the tribe of Amalek. Now, according to the Hebrew God, the Bible, the Old Testament, all the members of the tribe of Amalek have to be exterminated down to the youngest newborn baby. So when you're using rhetoric like that to describe the Palestinians, and you're killing tens of thousands of them, with absolutely no effort to safeguard civilians, you're denying food, water, and medicine to the people of Gaza. I mean, that certainly is the sort of thing that explains why many of the critics of the Israeli government are describing it as a genocide in fact or in intent. And in fact, many of the other members of the Israeli government have explicitly called for the extermination of all Palestinians. Now, can you imagine what would happen in the United States if the American government ever used that sort of rhetoric exterminating all the Iraqis, exterminating all of the people from another country we were fighting against. I mean, it would be the sort of thing, it would be unimaginable for the American government to use that sort of rhetoric. But not only is that rhetoric being used, but it's being supported publicly by probably 80% of the Israeli public, according to what they're saying. They want all the Palestinians expelled from the lands that have lived for hundreds or even thousands of years. And if they won't leave, then they have to be killed. I mean, that's what's going on is just so outrageous. It's unified the entire Muslim and Middle Eastern world, Arab world, against it. I mean, you have a million people in Turkey marching against Israel. You have Saudi Arabia and Iran, bitter adversaries, meeting together to coordinate their actions. You have all these other countries in the region that very likely may mobilize themselves in a general war against Israel. And the reason we've sent our aircraft carriers to that region is to try to deter all these other countries from coming in on behalf of the Palestinians. So, and, you know, it's just a very, very dangerous situation. I mean, basically, we're risking now the outbreak of World War III because Hamas fighters who've been imprisoned for decades in a concentration camp I mean, just to give you one more example, sure. over, the last 10, over the last 10 years, probably something like 5,000 
Palestinian, unarmed Palestinian civilians in Gaza have been killed by the Israelis. And so under those circumstances, it's hardly surprising that the Hamas fighters would then break out and kill a number of Israelis in retaliation. Probably they only killed one to 200 Israeli unarmed Israeli civilians with the rest killed by the Israeli military, which was very incompetent and trigger happy when they reacted. But I mean, we're talking basically a very, very dangerous situation with heightened tensions in the region that could easily see Turkey or Iran or Syria or so many of the other countries coming in in a military fashion, which could then broaden the war. I mean, Hezbollah, for example, in Lebanon has a huge stock of missiles and they could rain destruction on Israel in retaliation. They might certainly do that at some point. So, I mean, we're talking about potentially a world war breaking out if America is drawn in and Russia is drawn in simply because we won't force the Israelis to curb their massive attacks against the people of Gaza and the tens of thousands of civilians they've probably killed by now. Now, let's put a bow on it with this. Where do you see this going? I mean, we talked about um, how they kind of have a lock. Not kind of, they do have a lock uh, on the American media and even um, the European media. For most of Western media, they have a lock on, although European, I guess, a little bit less of a stranglehold uh, as far as, you know, um, not really being able to speak openly, mainstream figures, um, about the bullshit, for lack of a better word, uh, of, you know, the proponents of Zionism uh, out in the, in the public. Uh, how do you see that going long term uh, as a result of what's going on in Gaza? And how do you see uh, the state of Israel uh, going long term? And I don't mean like five, ten years. I mean 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, how do you see this turning out? To be honest, I see dramatic events possibly happening in a much shorter time period. Than really? That. I mean, next wow. few years. Okay. We're talking, I mean, this is, again, totally unprecedented. And what the whole thing about it is, you know, we're talking, again, about social media, s smartphones, videos. I mean, just to give an example. The American media, the mainstream American media, is totally locked down and giving an incredibly one-sided, biased version of the story. If we're talking about Fox News, if we're talking about CNN, if we're talking about any of the mainstream American media outlets. But those outlets are not as strong as they used to be. A lot of people are getting their information from videos on social media, from Twitter, from YouTube, from things like that. And what they are seeing, again, is that thousands and thousands of Palestinian children and infants have been killed by Israeli bombs in the last few weeks. And that's simply unprecedented. And so, for example, when you look at the public opinion polls, older people in the United States who still are you know, more set in their ways or get their information by watching Fox News or CNN, they're still overwhelmingly supportive of Israel. But among younger people get their information from social media or from Twitter or from videos. Israel's support is around 20% rather than 50 or 60 or 80%. And I, I think that will certainly grow as time goes by. I mean, you know, again, the, the facts are so clear cut when we're talking, not only that, but for example, the hostages who were seized by Hamas, when they were released, they specifically said how well-treated that they'd been. 
Basically, they were treated very well. They were given the same food, the same medical care as the Hamas fighters themselves. And in fact, some of the hostages, when they were rescued by the Israelis, were interviewed then by Israeli media outlets and said that all the other hostages had been killed by the Israeli military. In other words, they were not killed by the Hamas fighters. The survivors said that they'd all been killed by the Israeli military, which was very trigger-happy and had caused their deaths. So, you know, when things like that get out there, when people in the United States see that probably the majority of the Israeli civilians who were killed, the unarmed Israelis, Israeli civilians who were killed, were killed by their own government, in some cases even deliberately because of the Hannibal Directive. When they see, for example, that so many, that probably 15 or 20,000 Gazan Palestinians have now died by Israeli bombardment in the last few weeks, a gigantic death toll. I mean, that certainly makes them ask, well, what's going on here? And when they see the tremendous bias in the American media, they conclude the American media simply can't be trusted. So, you know, the whole thing is Israel has probably never been more hated worldwide. Hated not only in its region, but by two billion Muslims worldwide and by most other peoples around the world who don't live in countries with controlled media. Take, for example, China. China has stayed relatively neutral in this whole situation. It doesn't want to get involved, take a side between the Israelis or the Palestinians. But Chinese media has basically told both sides of the story. And somebody conducted a poll in China among ordinary Chinese who they felt was in the right of what was going on a few weeks ago. And 98% of Chinese came down on the side of the Palestinians. I mean, the truth of the matter the Palestinians had been living in Palestine for hundreds and hundreds of years. The Jews from Europe arrived, killed them, used terror tactics to drive them out, and drove them then into Gaza and the West Bank. Most of the Palestinians living in Gaza originally lived in Israel. They were driven out by the Israeli military. They were forced to leave, and they were dumped in Gaza. That's where the Gazan Palestinians came from. And now people are, should not be surprised that the Gazan Palestinians are unwilling to become refugees for a second time in their lives. And the same is also true of the West Bank. I mean, when you have, for example, leading Israeli rabbis saying that only Jews have souls, that all non-Jews in the world, whites, blacks, Asians, Palestinians, any like that, simply are animals in the shapes of men. And we're talking about the top Israeli Jew, Jewish rabbi saying that, that their lives count for nothing. And when they bomb Gaza to smithereens with American weapons, I mean, that certainly indicates that many ordinary Israelis, including members of the government, have taken those sentiments very much to heart. And that certainly gets back into a long history of Jewish behavior in some of these other cases I gave. So, you know, again, it, it all comes together. The reason these things have gone on as long as they have is that probably 98, 99% of the people around the world were unaware of them. And that's certainly 98 or 99% of Americans totally unaware of them. Now, with social media and videos, and the shocking events taking place in Gaza, those things have suddenly alerted people to what's going on. And many people previously paid no attention to the Middle East now are paying attention 
they're reading books, they're reading articles, they're looking at the internet, they're getting both sides of the story. And they're finding that what they've been told sometimes for decades by the mainstream media of the United States is simply not true. It simply is a very biased, distorted picture, forcibly held that way by the ADL and activist organization. So, I mean, at some point, I think this will reach a critical mass. I mean, when half of the American public now, across all ages, seems to support the Palestinians more than the Israelis in what's going on, I mean, that's unprecedented in American society. When you have the Biden administration, the Biden running for re-election, and he's discovered that more than half of the Democrats in his own party are probably on the Palestinian side, that makes him extremely nervous. I mean, basically all the money in the Democratic Party comes from these Jewish billionaires, most of whom are very strongly pro-Israel, pro-Zionist. But the votes aren't coming from that direction. And that makes, obviously, the Democrats very, very nervous about the situation. That's why they're trying now desperately to get the Israelis to, you know, call off their attack on Gaza. I mean, again, we're talking about really one of probably the biggest televised massacre of innocent civilians in the history of the world. And you can't cover it up these days. And you're right. There's been some shock polls. Uh, I remember one towards the beginning of all this, um, and you talked about Democrats, but even Republicans, I think there was 30 or 40 percent um, saying, you know, we shouldn't um, back Israel in this or send them weaponry and this and that. And if you watch the American media, you wouldn't understand that at all. You would think that's, you know, it was 90 percent support 99. for Israel. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's just totally um just out of whack with reality. Uh, and I, those polls shocked me because I, I remember coming on air a few weeks before that, and I was like, oh, maybe, uh, like I said a few minutes ago, oh, 10, 20 years, it'll shift. And then I saw some of those polls, and there's been a few since, and I was, my mind was blown even. Uh, and I've been talking about this stuff for years. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it's only going to continue to get worse, and you can only hold the lid uh, on so long, right? Uh, with with your false reality, so I, I agree with you on that, hundred percent. Exactly, and I'll say one. Other, well, I'll say one other point, probably. Sure, go ahead. And that's, I think one reason so many people, including so many Republicans, have started to take a more you know careful look at these facts is because of the Ukraine war. In other words, yeah. during the Ukraine war of Russia, most Republicans ended up very quickly deciding that the media was lying, the media was biased. In other words, even including Fox News, including outlets. I mean, you had Tucker Carlson, you had a lot of other credible figures on the Republican conservative side who were basically saying, I mean, D Douglas McGregor, you know, military yeah. expert, a lot of these people basically were saying that the media was lying to them, including Fox News media. And that's obviously one reason Tucker Carlson was fired, because he was basically taking a different line. He was fired by Fox News. So they really realized that nearly all of the American media had been lying for the last two years about what was going on with Russia and Ukraine. And they started looking at alternative outlets, the Internet, social media, videos, John Mearsheimer, Douglas McGregor, Ray McGovern, I mean, all of these very credible individuals, Jeffrey Sachs, who were telling the story that the regular media, that the mainstream media was hiding. So suddenly when the Gaza situation developed, you had a large number of people, including many Republicans, 
who were much more suspicious of the media than they might have been two years early. They'd also gotten very suspicious because of the whole COVID epidemic and things like that. They decided the media was lying to them about that. And so suddenly with Gaza developing, you know, you see a situation where many more of them are willing to basically go out and look for other sources of information rather than believing everything they see on the mainstream media, including Fox News. And I think that is changing more and more. And it, it's accelerating. So, you know, right now, for example, I, I think America can hold a lid on this. But if the war widens, if American forces end up getting involved in military conflict, direct military conflict with Hezbollah, with Iran, with Turkey, I mean, right, right now, there's actually talk that Turkey itself might come in militarily against Israel. I mean, Turkey has the strongest army in NATO. Turkey is our NATO military ally. If Israel and Turkey went to war, Israel is not an ally of the United States. America would suddenly be in a very difficult position because if America came out against Turkey, America would be fighting its largest NATO ally. And the implications of that would obviously be the total collapse of NATO. <laughs> NATO's done. Is that right? Like, I don't... <laughs> um... It's just, these are potentially very important events. I mean, these are basically, a lot of people think we might be heading with Ukraine, with Gaza, towards a world war. I mean, it's the equivalent of, you know, Franz Ferdinand being assassinated in 1914. All of these conflicts merging together. And it's an extremely dangerous situation. And, I mean, the fact that the Israelis feel that they can ignore America, that they can wrap America around their little finger, and do whatever they want with American weapons, you know, simply magnifies the danger that America is facing. And, you know, I, I think should start a lot of people, both the Republicans and Democrats, asking whether the American government is loyal to America or it's loyal simply to its donors, who in turn are loyal to a foreign country. And I think we know the answer to that question. Ron Unn's legendary appearance, another one uh, here. And my apologies for not remembering the name of the article. I was embarrassed by that, so I will apologize there. It's been a crazy day, uh, and I didn't have time to get it fully pulled up before I came on. Uh, but uh, check that out for sure. And, and plug your site again here uh, at the end. Uh, sure. I mean, if you want to go there, it's called it's uns.com. And unfortunately, we've been totally deranked by Google and banned by Facebook. So in other words, people have to come to the site to find out about it. But we're basically an alternative media site. We run left-wing articles, right-wing articles, libertarian articles, the sort of articles that are interesting and important, but will never appear in the mainstream media. And you can agree with them or disagree with them, but we give a very wide selection of these views. And obviously right now, a lot of the focus has been on the situation in the Middle East with Gaza. Yeah, and I think it'll continue to be. Uh, Ron, thank you so much uh, for taking some time out and giving us a little extra time here uh, on the kill stream. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get in contact a few months down the line uh, and try to get you back on. And I really appreciate it. And I hope you have a happy holiday season as well. Hey, that sounds great. And hopefully we'll get the video working. Yeah, that's right. Time. Next time we'll get the video. It's happened before. So don't worry about that. Uh, thank you, sir. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Ron Unz here live on the kill stream. I really, really enjoyed that. I have to say.